Well, the children are uh, dismissed to CFC Kids. We can be praying for them and for the volunteers that minister to them. As for us, we're going to be in the book of Revelation as we continue to move through. We just started last week. And um, one of the great points of relevance of the book of Revelation to us today is uh, where churches lose their way because they lose their vision of Jesus Christ. When we have a small view of Jesus, uh, the way we do church, the way we run church, uh, is drastically impacted. Uh, Churches are continuing to stumble over themselves, trying to figure out how to best be relevant to our culture, how to still be a welcome voice at the table of the world. And there's no way to do that except to go with the flow, be progressive, change views. That's traditional. That's old. You can't take that seriously. We need to get with the times. And when churches realize that their numbers are shrinking or not as many people are coming, one way to get more people in the pew, and don't miss it, more people in the pew means more money in the tray, you compromise. And at the center of those churches is no longer the grand vision of Jesus Christ that John gives us in the book of Revelation, but something else completely different. Still Jesus, but a modified Jesus, a tame Jesus, a side Jesus, but not the real Jesus. A prominent church, and let's just say the Chicago area, uh, a large church, an influential church, um, has a member of their congregation who is a, I'll say, politician. And this politician has repeatedly and publicly uh, promoted um, an LGBTQ agenda. And so some members of the church talked to the leadership about it. That went ignored. So then some other pastors caught wind of it. A letter was written. I was asked to sign it. Me and several other pastors signed it. Uh, I even showed it to our elders. We sent that on to the leadership of that church. The reply was very short. We have to be sensitive to the pressures of what it's like being a Christian and also a politician in this world. What is the easy response to that? Do you give that pass to every other member? Does the bricklayer experience pressures? Does the engineer experience pressures? No, we give a pass to the guy with money in the pocket. We give a pass to the guy who brings money to our pockets. Now that is a, what we know as a solid evangelical church. And I think the flame of that lampstand is flickering fast. Who is Jesus? Is he the side guy? Is he the guy that we get to interpret or reinterpret at will? Is he the guy that we get to remake and refashion according to the prevailing winds of our times? No. If you really saw Jesus, your response wouldn't be a high five. Your response wouldn't be to give him a pound or a bro hug. But you'd fall flat on your face. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, easy to turn to. You can find it quickly. Revelation chapter 1, we looked at 1 through 11 last time. 
let's look at the rest of it. And for now, let's just look at 12 to 17. Here's his first vision of Jesus, seeing Jesus. No twinkling teeth. He's not riding a skateboard. And he doesn't wear a gold chain. He's not wearing hip-hop clothes. Look at his description of who Jesus is. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So it's like this voice was coming behind him. He turns to see this vision. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the Christ. As we look at this passage, we are immediately struck by several things, and the point of those things is that Jesus is the fearsome center of all true churches. And I choose each of those words carefully. Jesus is the fearsome center of all true churches. And that's what this vision is getting at, what it's communicating for us. We talked a little bit about lampstands last time. And I told you that the lampstands represent the seven churches or churches in general because the seven churches uh, represent uh, God's people in the world And we saw that in verse 11. Those are the churches named right there for you. If you're wondering which specific churches he's referring to, those are the specific churches that represent all churches, as I argued last time. And then to skip ahead to verse 20, he makes it very clear. The lampstands are the churches. So this is not guesswork. We know the lampstands, the seven lampstands, that represents the churches. And the reason why they represent the churches, let me just try to do a little bit of work here. It's because in the Old Testament... When you went into the temple, and the temple was God's presence, right? The temple was God's presence in this world. The temple represented Israel, really, because Israel is God's presence in the world. And the lampstand uh, stood for God's light in darkness, right? So as long as I'm present with you, make sure that lampstand doesn't go out, and the priest will take care of that lamp and make sure it stays lit. Some of you all remember that, okay? That lampstand represents the temple through a figure of speech. And the reason why I just want to get a a little geeky with figures of speech is because it's hard to read the book of Revelation without understanding figures of speech. Simile, metaphor, in this case, a synecdoche. We use them all the time. You may not know the word, but you use it all the time when your friend pulls up in a new ride and you're like, man, nice wheels. Does he look directly at the wheels? Like, I, I don't know, they're stock. They just came with them. I didn't choose those wheels. You're saying nice car. Synecdoche is when you refer to a part that represents the whole. When an FBI agent shows up, you're like, the suit is here. You're not talking about a suit. You don't care where it came from. You just call him a suit, right? When Hebrews 1, uh, 8, uh, you see the verse where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Are we like, wow, why is it forever? Is it made of some material that we don't, haven't discovered yet? It's impervious to rust. It can't be corroded. 
He's not saying the throne is forever. He's saying the one who sits on the throne, the one to whom the throne belongs is forever. We know that instinctually, even if we don't go, oh, a synecdoche, right? But that's what the lampstand is. The lampstand represents the whole temple. It's a part of the temple, but it represents the whole temple, just like we don't separate wheels from a car when we say nice wheels. The lampstand is God's presence in the world. Now, interestingly... We talked about how we can't read the book of Revelation without the Old Testament in the other hand. Channeling Zechariah 4, the lampstand of the Old Testament was one lampstand with seven lamps on it, and now we see that it's seven different lampstands. Why? I think because when in the Old Testament it was one geographic location where God's presence was, one ethnic people where God's presence was, and now God's presence is... Uh, pushed throughout the world through his churches. So seven lampstands, one in Ephesus, one in Pergamum, one in Thyatira, you know. The seven lampstands because it's not one location like the Old Testament temple. Today's temple is God's presence through his church everywhere. And so the one becomes seven and beyond. So that's what's happening here. The first thing he notices is these lampstands. And the reason why he points that out first is because the whole point of the book of Revelation is not for seminary professors. The point of the book of Revelation is not for people who just want to do Sudoku with the Bible and just mess with numbers and stuff. It's for encouragement to the churches. It's for the churches. And he's going to give messages to these seven churches. We're going to see that in chapters 2 and 3 starting next week. But the whole point of it is these lampstands and who's walking in the midst of them, who's holding them, who's in control of them, who's at the center of them? Jesus Christ himself, the bright shining son of man, the judge, the king, the priest, not the wimpy side guy. He says he saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Remember we, that language is, is cueing Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 10 saying this is the guy that Daniel prophesied, this, this figure from the ancient of days that's going to judge all the nations and wrap everything up. All of the world's history is pointing toward this culmination of the Son of Man wrapping things up that Daniel talked about. This is him. I'm seeing him, and it's Jesus Christ. He sees one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash. Some people say that's kingly garments. Some say it's priestly garments. It doesn't take much reading of the New Testament to know it's both. Jesus is both our priest. He's, he is our king. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. You're not supposed to think wool soft. You're supposed to think wool white. Why white? Purity. Purity. It's not saying he's old. Right? He's, he's, he's so old. It's white, pure, like snow, like wool. Right? He is pure. He is stainless. He is sinless. He is holy. And it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Don't mistake his purity for softness. Don't mistake his purity for, I don't care about things. You do you. But his eyes of fire speak of judgment and his role as judge. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. You know, when you refine metals and take everything out that's not the metal and you get this beautiful, pure, untainted metal at the end of the process, he's, again, he is 
pure and holy. He is righteous and true. What does his voice sound like when John hears him? Have you ever stood by a waterfall? Can you speak at the volume I'm speaking now? Not, not if you want someone next to you to hear you. Right? The, the, the sound of roaring waters is what his voice sounds like. He is powerful. It speaks of his strength. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Seven stars, we'll get to that in a minute. Hopefully I don't forget to, but we'll get to that in a minute. They, they essentially represent the churches through another image. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What's the sword for? When you read Isaiah, the, the sharp sword is for judgment. Actually, we'll, we'll see that when he's talking to the letters to the churches, he tells them the sword is for judgment. He makes that clear in chapter 2. But that's his word of judgment. He speaks judgment. Even in chapter 19, when he comes riding the horse and he cuts the enemies down, it's with his words, not a real knife. He just has to speak judgment, and it happens. That's it. And then his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is why you can't just walk up to him and give him a pound. It's like when you have the sun at full strength and you're trying to stare at it and your eyes are starting to water, right, and your soul is being crushed, the longer you stare at it, that's the effect. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let me take a moment, because this is going to help us later as we move through Revelation, how to handle symbols, okay? This is a weird image. And some of you over lunch might be tempted, maybe, I don't know, to pull out a pencil and start sketching this image. I don't think it's really possible. You'll end up with a really weird image. But we, tie, we, we go, well, it's figurative, but we still try to take the figures almost like a literal picture. And it doesn't really work. So, for instance... How does his voice sound like water if it looks like a sword? In a moment when he speaks to John, how is he speaking if there's a sword in his mouth? How does John describe what his hair looks like if he can hardly look at him because it's shining like the sun at full strength? So how do they all work together? How is he holding seven stars in his hand? Is it clasped in his hand? How does he count that there's seven if his hand is closed? Is it open and the stars are floating above his hand? It says in his hand. And then what does he drop them in the next verse when he puts his hand on John? It says he puts his right hand on John. What happened to the stars? Oh, oh. Oh, he must drop them. We have no hope. No. It's not supposed to be a static image that you can draw. This is not supposed to be filmable. I don't think the last episode of Chosen is going to be Revelation 1. You can't put it into an actual visual that works. One minute, it's a sword. The next minute, the next second, he's describing his voice as sounding like rushing waters. There's symbols that work together not to help you draw a portrait, but to help you understand a point. And that point that all these symbols work together to drive home is that Jesus is the fearsome center of all true churches. I say true churches because when we get to chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that, you know, some churches uh, are lampstands. 
Some churches are lampstands, and Jesus is threatening to take that lampstand away if your nonsense persists. Some churches aren't lampstands at all. So because a, there's a building, <laughs> right, where people gather and they say it's a church and they're incorporated as a church, uh, does not make it a church according to Jesus. What makes a church a church? The fact that he holds it. The fact that he's in the midst of them. In the Old Testament, the priests would take care of the lamps by cutting the wick, refilling the oil, making sure the light doesn't go out, right? The, the priest keeps the lampstand going. He, he cares for it, he guards it, he keeps it. And I think that's the imagery being channeled here. He's, he's in the midst of the lampstands. He cares for these churches. He cuts the wick. He trims them. He makes sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. And that's why we get those letters to the seven churches in, the next, in chapters 2 and 3. That's what he's doing. He's trimming, he's keeping, he's guarding, he's protecting. He tells them what he thinks they're doing great, and he tells them the things that they need to work on, right? That's what Jesus does. He is the center. And as soon as a church stops asking truly, not what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do? That's so hypothetical. What has Jesus said? That remains at the center. As soon as churches start losing that, they lose their way. Not every church is a lampstand. But true churches have at their center this fearsome Christ. Now, as fearsome as he is, as powerful as he is, as sovereign as he is, he's tender. And that's hard for us to commute. He's either tender or terrifying. And I, I submit to you, he's terrifying and tender. And I put it in that order because if we go tender first, then we put t- terrifying to the side. Terrifying first, and we fall on our face, then he comes with the tenderness, see? We're terrified because we're not holy. We're terrified because we don't shine like the sun. We're terrified because we should be overwhelmed by rushing waters of judgment. And as we fall in repentance, he comes and speaks tenderly. Listen to what he tells John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, just like Daniel did, by the way. Go read Daniel 10. Daniel did the same thing. He saw the Son of Man straight on his face. Everybody else ran. And he said, my strength just came out of me. It fell right down. And he says, but he laid his right hand on me, right hand communicating sovereignty, the sovereignty of holding churches, the sovereignty to tell somebody the comforting news he's going to tell him now. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. We'll stop there. Notice that his comfort is, Fear not. I'm not scary. Don't fear. What are you fearful about? Silly goose. He doesn't say, fear not because I'm not to be feared. Fear not because there's nothing fearful about me. He says, fear not because even though I'm fearsome and you should die, guess what? I conquered death for you. Don't be on the floor acting like you're dead. I conquered death for you. Stand up because I am life. The encouragement is not that Jesus is wimpier than fire and brimstone churches will have you believe. No, he's all that and more. But he still 
made a way for you to stand in his presence. How did he make that way? By being the first and the last. That channels three chapters at least from Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 44, and 48. We won't read those, but on your own time, check those out. Where if you wonder, why does he say he's the first and the last? Go read those chapters, Isaiah 41, 44, and 48. Okay, now in those passages you'll see clearly that being the first and the last means there's none before me, behind me, in front of me, next to me, I'm it. All these kings you're afraid of, all these kings of the earth that they think they have everything, you know, Babylon, they're, they're, they're nothing. I'm it. I'm first and last. I'm second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. There's no other place. He wins all the trophies, right? He stands on all the levels. There's no competition, is what he's saying, by first and last. And the first and last in Isaiah 41, 44, and 48 are always connected with his judging, his promise to judge the nations. His promise to judge the nations. Why can he judge all the kings of the nations? Because they're nothing before him. He's really it. He's really the king. He's the one that's actually sovereign. He's the one that's in charge. Even when it looks like he's not. That's the point. From Daniel's point of view, doesn't look like you're in charge. I can't even I can't pray when I want. Right? I'll get I get persecuted by the real rulers, and God is like, no, no, no. Let me give you a peek. Let me open the curtain and show you the Son of Man so you can see who's really in charge. This is just a play. It's playing out. Okay. But the one who really rules is the Son of Man himself. He is the first and the last. And interestingly, we covered this recently for Christmas, is Jesus God? The first and the last in Isaiah is Yahweh. Who's Jesus to come and now say, I'm the first and the last? Not I represent him, I'm sort of his sidekick. I am the first and the last. There's a little bonus. Bonus. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. How did that happen? His resurrection. What does he secure? That's what he says. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. That means that he entered into the prison of death, a prison that awaits all of us, right? a prison that awaits each of us. He enters into that prison and got himself out. And then when he got himself out, he got the keys. Why? To break other people out. Other people that are stuck in death. Other people that, that, um, that have no hope of standing before this king. He provides keys, which is freedom to escape the entrapment of death. Not that we don't experience the first death, but that we wouldn't experience the second death, the eternal death. So Jesus Christ, this fearsome center of his churches, makes these churches alive with him, not because he's not to be feared, but because he makes us holy. He gives us new life. And that's why he's at the center of the churches, leading and guiding in that way. Then he moves on and gives him a command. Just like with Old Testament prophets, they see this great vision of God. Isaiah 6, you see this great vision of God. Oh my goodness, you're unraveled. You, you, you think you're going to die. God atones 
and then sends, right? In Isaiah 6, same, similar with Daniel. Here with John, get up, and now I want you to write. I want you to deliver message to the churches. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's just back up to the beginning there. His command is for him to write the book of Revelation. No mystery there. He's commissioning this whole book that we're studying to be written for the benefit of the churches. But notice how he says, write, therefore, the things I'm going to give you. And as you may have heard before, when you see the word therefore, see what it's there for, right? When you use the word therefore, that means a prior point has been established. And because this is true, therefore, this. Well, what, what, what precedes this? Write, therefore. Why is he able to write? Why is he able to communicate to churches anything at all? Because Jesus is the fearsome center of all true churches. And because he's the center, he gets to tell churches what to do. That's pretty simple. Sadly, many churches miss that. Some churches start out with that and then lose it along the way. But that's what we're not supposed to miss. This grand vision of Jesus and then the book of Revelation. This grand vision of Jesus and then communication to the churches. We receive words from Jesus because he's our center, he's our leader, he's our priest, our king, our coming judge. He is the center. Not just the center of a gathering on Sunday morning, not just the center of the service, but of our lives, right? Of our lives. We live with him at the center. And if we're questioning with regard to certain decisions, we, we run it by Scripture first. We run it by the Word. We run it by what Jesus commands. Right? The things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. You see how there's sort of a past, present, future there? Write the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are yet to take place after this. Quick side note here, just because I do think it will help us as we move forward. Some take that to be like a map of the book of Revelation. The first part of Revelation are the things that did happen. This middle part of Revelation are the things that are happening for John. And then the end of Revelation are the things that haven't happened yet for John. And I don't think that works. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I already talked to you about the seven episodes that sort of repeat. Okay, it's, it's like if you were watching a show that had seven episodes, but each episode is the same story, but from a different angle. Rather than each episode being the next thing chronologically, it's the same timeline, same time frame, same characters, but maybe one episode you see it from this guy's point of view, and then the next episode you see it from the villain's point of view. The camera angle changes, but the episode is the same. So I don't think we're supposed to take this and try to figure out which one happened and which one is about to happen. Did the Antichrist come or is he coming? Did the beast happen or we're waiting for the beast? Which sea does he come out of? Should I not live on the coast? Right? Am I poking fun a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Because when we take it too far, we miss this point. The book of Revelation is not to figure out where you're supposed to live, the timeline, how many years you have left. The point of the book of Revelation is to live your life with Christ at the center. That is the revelation. That is what's being revealed. He is the center. He is the king who's going to come and every knee will bow. In the meantime, we press ahead 
not figuring out timelines. I think what he means here, the things that, ha- that you saw, the things that are, and the things that are coming, they're kind of a blur. And this is why churches debate Revelation so much when they try to take the blurry thing and make it clear and crisp rather than letting it blur a little bit. I think we need to have some freedom there and say, hey, I think in the church age, all these things we're reading are sort of repeating things. This is, we live in a world of antichrists. There's always a beastly attack on the church. The church is always witnessing. We're not just waiting around for two special witnesses while we hide in the hills. There, there's all these things persist throughout the church age. I think ramping up to a big final moment in the end where maybe all of these things are most exacerbated in the end. Some think it gets better until the end. But, but throughout the church age, we see these same realities over and over and over true for John's time, true for my time, and if there's three, four, who knows how many generations after us, true for them as well. So Jesus Christ is communicating that because he's boss, he can communicate to the churches and encourage them. Not so that churches drop in fear and don't do anything and we're paralyzed, but so we stand, and like John, we're commissioned. We are lampstands. And so we take what's written and we explain it to those We bring it to those who don't have the revelation. They don't have hope. And so when he makes this clear, he says, uh, he gives a little explanation, right? He says, write these things that, that have been, that are, that are going to take place. And then he explains, look, I know you might be confused. I just want to be clear. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this is real easy to just get lost in side trails, okay? The word angel means messenger. It literally just means messenger, right? Angelos is messenger. And we translate it angels when we think he must mean spiritual messengers. And we translate it messenger when we go, he just must mean a dude that has a message or somebody that has a message for somebody. But, but the Greek is angelos, right? Or angeloi, plural. Now, what's going on here? There's seven stars that are the angels of the seven churches and seven lampstands. Here are the options. Those could be um, human messengers, and he's saying, write these to the human messengers, maybe the pastors, pastors of the church. That's not my favorite position, because now I'm like, say what? Like, that's a lot more responsibility than I even thought I perhaps had. Um, I don't think it's that. The book of Revelation, when the book of Revelation uses angels, it means angels. And it's like 60 times throughout the book of Revelation. It's not like we have a couple spots. It's over and over and over. If it's not spirit beings here, it'd be like the one place where it doesn't mean that. And, you know, that, that's tough. But what's difficult about that is like, wait, does each church have an assigned angel? Maybe. Perhaps. Some people think each Christian has an assigned angel, right? Guardian angels? I don't think Scripture bears that out. I don't think Scripture contradicts that maybe we have guardian angels but the reason why typically especially protestant churches don't focus on that so much is because a we don't have information enough to understand that and b we get sidetracked where angels start becoming our thing instead of jesus becoming our thing angels are the side players it's kind of like pay no mind sometimes you see their feet behind the curtain real quick but that they're not they're not the director just focus on what the director is telling right But here's what I want you to notice. Even if there are spirit beings that are assigned to churches, and even if he's 
in part addressing those spirit beings. He's really addressing the churches, and that doesn't take much or interpretational work at all. Look at what he says. For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Who is he after here? Who is he trying to talk to here? The seven churches. He says it twice. And then what's chapter 2 and chapter 3? The messages to the seven churches, one church at a time. And then in each of those messages, he ends it by saying, make sure that this is heard by all the churches. So it's not just the message for Ephesus, you know, Theatira doesn't have to hear it. The message to Sardis, Pergamum doesn't have to hear it. All seven have to hear all seven, and all churches everywhere have to hear all seven because this is about the churches, plural. We're not supposed to get caught up in, you know, archangels and angelic beings. I wonder what the name is of the church that serves CFC and all this kind of stuff. But we are supposed to understand that the point of it is what Jesus wants to communicate to his churches. So we can understand the point of the second half of Revelation 1 like this. Jesus Christ is the death-defeating, kingly center of all true churches. And that's an encouragement. Because when our king comes, he comes not to defeat us. He defeated death for us. And so we long for this coming. We longingly expect this coming. That's why the whole book of Revelation doesn't end with, Oh, Lord Jesus, don't come yet. I haven't done enough yet. It's, Lord Jesus, come. And I don't know how many of us pray like that. You know, I don't pray it often enough. I feel like I'm giving up on life or something. But when you see the next mass shooting... When you're cho- you have to choose between two wicked politicians to vote and you just see what our kids have to face compared with what our parents had to face when they were in, and you just see this, this rising beast, really, even oppressing the church. It is not wrong. In fact, it is biblical to say, Lord Jesus, I cannot wait till you show up like this with your face shining and your sword flashing and the voice that no one can ignore. It's a beautiful thing for the church. Jesus puts his right hand on John and says, fear not. Why? Because he's made a way for us to welcome his coming, to expect his coming, to be rescued by his coming. He defeated death on our behalf so he can be that ruling, sovereign center of all churches and be an enduring encouragement to all churches. Let me just close with this because I think it's really helpful to drive home that point. This vision that that John has of Jesus underpins and undergirds everything Jesus says to the churches. So keep in mind what we just read, his shining face, his hand holding the seven stars, the seven lampstands among which he walks, the, the bronze feet, right, the sharp sword, Think of all those images that we just saw, and I just want you to see the intro to each church. And as you look at the opening of chapter 2, he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. There you have uh, his uh, vision being channeled with the same opening as the vision that we just saw. Verse 12, the words to Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Boom. 
There it is, channeling the same vision again. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's the vision again. You can see the message at the top of chapter 3, verse 1, to Sardis, the church in Sardis. Write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, The church in Laodicea, in verse 14, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. This is why he tells John, hey, write, therefore write, write this truth. And in chapter 19, when he comes riding that white horse, what's his name? Faithful and true. And so we see that as you look at these intro to the churches, he's basically taking this vision that we just unpacked. He takes that vision and everything he tells the churches, hey, you lost your first love. Hey, you're being lukewarm. Hey, you're tolerating wrong teaching. Hey, you're, you're caring for people. That's great, but you've got this wrong. All of those things are rooted and based in this grand vision of Jesus. So why have I said this so many times? Jesus is the fearsome, kingly center of all true churches. Because when we miss that, we don't know how to correct false doctrine. We don't know how to encourage people in the right ways. We lose our way. We lose our anchor. So what I encourage you to do is we continue to read through all of the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation. Think of Jesus as this awe-inspiring king. Not just in an end-time sense, but in your life. Does he rule what you watch? Does he rule who you date? Does he rule how you respond to somebody when they tick you off? Does he rule everywhere but certain places? Does he rule all your habits? Does he rule? I think if we see Jesus like this grand figure in both senses, he's terrifying, so I better make sure my life matches what he wants, but he's also tender and has made a way for my life to match what he wants. I don't go, okay, Let me try to fix this and then come to Jesus because we just stayed dead on the floor. But instead we go, let's go to the king who gives us what we need to live lives that match what he commissions, what he says. And we need his grace for that. Let's close in prayer. Fathers, we sing this final song to you. We pray that you would give us better vision of you as we're surrounded by increasing um, darkness. disheartening things that we read daily in our news feeds. Uh, May we not grow despondent or discouraged or disheartened, but encouraged that you still hold the churches in your hand. You still hold us in your hand. You are caring for the churches. The light of the churches will never go out because you're a perfect and effective priest. Uh, Light will pierce darkness. Um, people will continue to get saved and discipled. Your kingdom does grow. And uh, we pray that as we close in this song that we would be mindful um, that we sing to you as our kingly center, center of our church, center of our homes, center of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll sing.